Well, over the last couple of days, I've been trying to build up a framework for a biblical view of guidance. Uh, and the process that I suggested last night for sort of making decisions is uh, to search the scriptures. That's kind of what I've been saying every night, I guess. Uh, because the Bible is our sufficient guide from God. It thoroughly equips us for every good work. It reminds us that God and his son are at the centre of the universe, not us. It tells us where God is taking this world. Uh, and it tells us what God wants us to know and what matters matter. So when it comes to making decisions, we ought to search the Bible and ask God to grant us wisdom by his spirit. Uh, so tonight what I'm going to do is to try to bring all that together by looking in depth at what the Bible has to say about the topic of work. You might ask, well, why do a case study on work? But it seems to me that a lot of us actually feel under quite a bit of pressure when it comes to work. Many of us have gone to uni with some kind of career path in mind of where we'd like to head in life. And others of us have studied arts. <laughs> If I had my time over again, I would have done an arts degree. But uh, I'm serious, okay. <laughs> arts is not about getting a job. Arts is about life. <laughs> but most of us have felt, and we continue to feel, the pressure on us to have some kind of career. And that pressure comes from a few different quarters, doesn't it? But some of us, it comes from our parents, uh, from our peers, from our, our school, from our university. And they're all pushing us to get us onto a particular kind of career path. So most of us have parents who love us, and so naturally they worry about our future. They're concerned for you. They want us to do well. They want to be proud of us. And that's a, a right thing to want. But it's often tied up with the idea of career, isn't it? My daughter, the lawyer. My son, the doctor. We feel the weight of how much money they've spent on raising us and educating us. Maybe they've worked their guts out to give you opportunities that they never had themselves. Maybe you are their retirement plan. I'm serious. Like, you know, for a number of students, that is how it works. It's not so much true in Anglo-Saxon culture, but it's true in many Asian cultures that parents sacrifice significantly for their children, and they expect their children to look after them in their retirement. They've bought all their money into you, and they expect you to honour that by providing for them in their old age. That's not a wrong thing. But there is pressure involved with that. And then there's the pressure that we feel from our peers. They're planning where they'll be in 5, 10, 20 years' time. And it seems to me that uh, students seem to be doing more and more to try and get ahead. More students are working part-time jobs, more are doing internships, more are volunteering than when I went through you. All to avoid getting left behind in our careers. And school and uni encourage that as well, because there are league tables and rankings. They want to be higher up on them so that they can attract more students and make more money. Their prestige is tied up with your career choice. No one at UWA will boast if you become a garbage man. But if you become a Nobel laureate, well, you'll have libraries named after you. <clears throat> their prestige, their money, is tied up with your success in terms of career. Uni I work at, UWA, has succeeded in conning most students into believing that they need a master's degree to get a job. <laughs> and so now everyone has professional masters and everyone's just the same again. We're all just two years older and a lot more in debt. <laughs> what a brilliant scam. But why do all these pressures exist? Well, mostly because it's of the way that our culture views work. See, what's one of the first questions that you ask people when you meet them? What do you do? Now that is something that's true in our culture, but in many cultures it's not. I'm told that in traditional Aboriginal culture, 
what you do when you meet someone that you haven't met is you sit down and you talk until you work out how you're related. Can sometimes be a very long talk, but they're interested in what's your family? Where do you where do you fit? Because that's how they work out where you fit in the world. One of my uh, African friends told me that in her circles, the key question was, where did you go to school? Because as soon as you know what school someone went to, you know where they fit. You know where they fit in the world. And that's what we are doing when we ask someone what they do, isn't it? It's not just pure curiosity about how you spend your time. It's actually affects the way we think of them. If someone says, I clean toilets, we think of them differently from if they say, I'm a neurosurgeon. Where do you fit in the world? What's your stance? So our culture, in our culture, work determines status. We just kind of do it instinctively. Status is largely determined by our career, but I think that is actually a thoroughly pagan idea. See, does God think that a neurosurgeon is more valuable than a garbage collector? I don't think so. On top of that, somehow we've acquired the idea that our work ought to be fulfilling. We want a career that's interesting and exciting, rewarding. I mean, financially rewarding, of course, but it's more than that. It's status, it's meaning, it's a sense that I'm valuable, I'm a good person, I'm, I'm doing good things in the world. But that's weird too. Because most workers around the world are not looking for a fulfilling job. They're just looking for a job. Any job that will give them enough money to survive, to put food on the table for them and their families. And if that means shoveling coal out of a pit or cleaning toilets or screwing the lids on toothpaste tubes, then so be it. They're not expecting their job to bring fulfilment. Well, what about Christians? Should our work be where we look for our fulfilment, for our value and our significance? No, I don't think so. Because our value and significance, our contentment and satisfaction, they should come from being God's child, a brother or sister of Jesus, part of his family. The fulfilment we should be looking for is not in our job, but in Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. But what Jesus says well done for is often very different from what your boss will say well done for. So there's this culture around us that affects our thinking about work. But there's also a Christian culture around us that makes things difficult and confusing too. Part of it revolves around this idea of gifts and talents. After all, doesn't Jesus say to invest my talents wisely? So if he's given me musical talent, then I'm under obligation to use the talent that he's given me. But this actually comes from getting confused about the parable of the talents, where Jesus tells a parable of a master giving his servants talents of gold to invest according to their ability. See, a talent is not in the Bible, an ability. It's a weight. It's about 33 kilos. So to say, wow, you're really talented, is <laughs> maybe not a compliment. In fact, the word talent, to mean like a gift or ability, really only came into the English language about 600 years ago because people got confused about the parable of the talents. That's actually where it comes from. They confused the measurement of the weight for the, uh, to mean ability. But Jesus wasn't talking about God giving you one or two or five abilities that you must use or you'll get in trouble with the master. No, he was telling a parable about making the most of the opportunities that he gives you to grow his kingdom. Investing wisely for the growth of his kingdom. Now, apart from the exegetical train wreck of confusing a Roman weight with an ability, what makes you think that God is so stingy that he only gave you one or two abilities 
actually given you once. I mean, maybe he has given you the ability to be an amazing pianist. You could be a concert pianist. That could be your career. But I'll bet you 20 bucks he's also given you the ability of being a toilet cleaner. But we who are the talented ones, we who have the academic and intellectual ability to make it to uni, we have pressure put on us to use our abilities. <coughs> but where are you encouraged to use them? Well, in the obvious place, in your job, in your career. But the gifts that God gives you are not for your career. They're actually for his church. Your only obligation is to do what God's church needs and you're capable of. Just because you've got the brains to become a doctor doesn't mean you have to. I was talking to a bunch of um, med students some years ago, and I commented to them, has it actually occurred to any of you guys that someone could get the sport of getting into medicine but choose to do arts? And one of the guys, I guess one of the more honest ones, looked at me and said, no. And I said, really? He said, no, it's never occurred to me before. But it's true, isn't it? <laughs> Just because you've got the brains to become a doctor doesn't mean you have to. In fact, becoming a doctor could be a really bad use of the abilities God has given you uh, in terms of the kingdom of God. It's a very demanding job being a doctor. It doesn't leave you a lot of time to share the gospel. Not that you can't, but there are certainly plenty of jobs where you can do it more easily. Then there's also the idea of calling. You know, God's called me to be a lawyer or a teacher or a physio, which leaves me sort of asking the question, why has God so middle class? Because <laughs> I've never heard a toilet cleaner or a garbage man tell me that God called them to that career. No, it's always the middle class people, it's the middle class professionals who God has called. Just makes me slightly suspicious about it. In the Bible, the calling God gives is the call not to a career, but to belong to the Lord Jesus. Just like Brett was saying the other night. It's the call that he gives to all of us. It's the call that you've responded to if you're a Christian. And it's a terrific and wonderful call. But it's not your job. Your job is just something that you do with your time to put food on the table. So let's take a step out of our culture and take a look at work from God's perspective. What is work? What did God make work to be? And if we go back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see a little bit of what God intended. So come with me back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Almost the first thing that you find out in the Bible about God is that he is a worker. For six days God worked, creating the universe, bringing it into existence, shaping it, filling it, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And in the process of God working to create the world, he actually makes humans to be workers like him. Have a look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, I actually think it means lots of things. But one thing it means is that we're made to be workers like him. Our job is actually to rule. God gives us that job. Not as some sort of slacker who just has minions to do stuff for him, but as proper rulers. Ruling takes effort. It involves filling the earth and subduing it. 
God could have subdued the whole world himself. But he didn't. He left most of it wild. So that we could be workers like him, contributing something significant and worthwhile to his creation. You see something similar in chapter 2, verse 4. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. The shrubs and plants in the land hadn't sprung up yet because there was no man to work. God's purpose for us was to contribute something of significance. To bring, to be involved in bringing the world to the goal that he intended. That's the same reason that God puts man in the garden. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. His job was to look after the garden and to expand it so that eventually the whole world would become a garden. Subduing the world is not about crushing it and ruining it. It's about bringing it under control. It's cutting back the grass. It's digging out the vegetable patch. It's planting fruit trees. It's providing for his own sustenance as well as expanding the garden. Creating a world where the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the living creatures that move along the ground could flourish and thrive. God made us to work. Which is why idleness is such a curse. I was at a wedding reception once where I got to uh, talk to the grandfather of the group. We were sitting next to each other on one of the tables. Uh, and he suddenly said to me, have you got a hobby? So a little take in the back. And I said, um, no, um, I, like, I like reading a bit. And he said, you must get a hobby. My friend and I retired at the same time. Him, no hobby, dead in a year. <laughs> Me, I do wood turning and I'm still going strong at 85. <laughs> now there is something right about that, I think. We humans are workers. There's something about idleness that corrodes us. God, in his incredible generosity, gave us a position in creation that mattered. He gave us the privilege of doing things in the world that make a difference that are significant. significant. It's a wonderful act of generosity that he invites us to share in his activity of work. But then the world we live in today is not the Garden of Eden, is it? When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, work was one of the things that was affected. God cursed the ground. You can see that over in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. God says to the man, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Humans are still dependent on working the ground, but now it's become a struggle. In this world, work is no longer as enjoyable and satisfying as it was back then. We have to wrestle our food from the ground, and in the end, the ground wins. We turn back into dust, and we push up days. In fact, if you're anything like me, you're a better gardener when you're dead than when you're alive. <laughs> Most of our world ekes out that sort of existence. Struggling day after day, week after week, year after year, to pull something out of the ground to survive. The book of Ecclesiastes is a fascinating book, and it says lots about work. The teacher says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. He does all these exciting projects, landscape architecture, and he succeeded at them. My heart took delight in all my work, he says, and this was the reward for all my labour. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, 
and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was vapor, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And that is the character of work today. No matter how hard you work, no matter how successful you are, nothing lasts. And so it can't provide the satisfaction that it was meant to bring. But what about Jesus then? Because he comes to reverse the curse of sin. What effect does that have on work? Well, if we go uh, to Revelation chapter 7 that we looked at on Monday, John sees a vision of a great multitude from every tribe and nation and language and people gathered before the Lamb, worshipping and praising him. And the angel says to God, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. In the age to come, when God unites everything under Jesus, what will we be doing? Not sort of floating around on clouds, playing harps, whiling away the time. No, we'll be working, serving God in meaningful, worthwhile labour, doing it in his temple, his world, where God will dwell with us. So now, uh, having laid the groundwork in the first half of this talk, I want to spend the second half looking at making decisions about work. Why work? How to work? What work? And alternatives to work. So first up, why work? That seems like an important question to ask, doesn't it? Uh, and here's one of the answers that the Bible gets from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. You might like to come to 1 Thessalonians with me, do a little bit of Bible flipping in the next section. So if you're a fast Bible flipper, go for it. If you're a slow Bible flipper, look next to look on the person next to you, if they're a fast one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Why work? Well, for one thing, because working is a good advertisement for Jesus, and bludging off others is not. Working means you don't have to be financially dependent on others. The logic of that gets uh, sort of spelled out in the next passage that we're going to look at, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Come with me to Ephesians 4, 28. Ephesians 4, 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. See, stealing from others, or just sort of bludging off them, means that you're taking from them instead of being able to give to others. The Bible says go get a job, so you can be generous to others. And that means that you can free up those who would otherwise have to support you, so they can support people who actually need it. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Flip over with me to that now as well. 1 Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5 verse 11. Paul's been uh, telling Timothy not to put younger widows on the list of those who get a pension from the church. Why? He says in verse 11, because when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. Why work? Well, because idleness is destructive. Instead of doing something productive with our time, we don't need to work. We just end up doing stuff that is not helpful. We chew up our time gossiping with others, becoming busybodies. So the Bible says, don't do that. Go get a job. 
Have you something useful with your time? Now it's probably worth uh, pausing here for a moment just to consider what we mean by work. Uh, when, for example, in Titus chapter 3, Paul urges the older women to teach the younger women to be busy at home, we often read that as a commandment against work. As if Paul is saying, stay at home. But actually his emphasis is on being busy. Because running a home is effectively running a small business. It's washing, cleaning, repairing things, cooking, managing the finances and the kids. If you read the description of the ideal wife in Proverbs 31, she is not just sitting home with the, kid, with the kids, bored out of her mind. She's actually getting up early in the morning. She's uh, getting the house running. She's buying property. She's trading goods. She's actually making all the significant choices about how the household runs. And it's a big job, managing the investments, managing the property market, all that kind of stuff. It's a big job, an honourable job. But our culture despises it. Our culture says that unless you're a professional, you're wasting your life. But that is so wrong, and it's a terrible burden. The Bible is encouraging us to work, but it's not encouraging us to be professionals. A few years ago, uh, Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, great name, isn't it? <laughs> Anne-Marie Slaughter, uh, the former Director of Policy Planning at the State Department in the US um, under Obama, wrote an article in The Atlantic called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Uh, and she'd previously been a university lecturer and believed that she could be both a successful mother and have a successful career. In fact, she says that she criticised other women for not doing both. But this is what she writes in this article in The Atlantic about working at the State Department. The minute I found myself in a job that is typical for the vast majority of working women and men, working long hours on someone else's schedule, I could no longer be both the parent and the professional I wanted to be, at least not with a child experiencing a rocky adolescence. I realised what should perhaps have been obvious. Having it all, at least for me, depended almost entirely on what type of job I had. The flip side is the harder truth. Having it all was not possible in many types of jobs. That's her experience. She's a very capable woman, very intelligent, uh, very high power, and yet she can't do both. She can't be a mum and she can't do this professional career at the same time. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that uh, women should all stay at home or something like that. But what I am saying is that I think as a society we've been suckered on this. We've bought the lie that my value comes from my career. And so if I'm a housewife or a house husband, then I'm kind of just a dead weight on society or something. That unless I have this professional career, I really have no value. And it seems to me that employers must be over the moon about that. Because when people believe that, that their value comes from work, well, you can pay them less, and you can make them work harder, and they'll thank you for it. What a great gig as an employer. What a scam. Because they think that without their job, their lives would lack meaning. The Bible does see work as valuable, but it doesn't really distinguish between work outside the home and work within it. And it certainly doesn't see having a career as the place to find meaning in life. So why work? Well, the passage Patrick read for us tonight, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15, uh, is one of the strongest passages in the Bible about work. Because Paul says, he flat out says, if you won't work, then you don't eat. Won't work? Starve. Go get a job. Why? Well, two reasons. One, to feed yourself instead of sponging off others. And secondly, so you're not idle. There's nothing here about your gifts and abilities. There's nothing about having a fulfilling uh, career or status. 
Yeah, that's an argument from silence, but it does seem to me that Paul is using every argument possible to try and get them to work. So I think the silences are significant. When he's listing the reasons to work, he just has very few of the ones that our society values. It's just to not be idle, to make some money, to look after yourself and others that need looking after. Kind of feels unspiritual, doesn't it? But actually, it's not. It's how God provides for you. And provides for those that he's given you responsibility for. Actually, exercising the self-control, the discipline, to go and get a job, even if it's boring, to make money, to look after yourself, to look after those who depend on you. Well, that is a very spiritual thing to do. But it seems so boring with him. Where's the excitement? I want excitement in my career. I want to be, I want to be like um, Ben. Not me, the other Ben. <laughs> uh, who gets to do paragliding? A lucky Ben. That's a terrific thing to be able to do. What an exciting career. Uh, but we don't need it. And we shouldn't tell people that they need it. Because for most people in the world, it simply isn't possible. So that's why it would work, to provide for yourself and others and to not be idle. But what about hard work? Well, come with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Colossians 3, verse 22. This is Paul writing to uh, slaves and masters, which... It's not really um, roles that we have as such, but it's loosely analogous to uh, an employee and an employer. And he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. He says, Jesus will reward you for your work. So you ought to work as though Jesus is the one who gave you the work. Is your work to do assignments? How do you think about it? How would you think about them if you thought about them as the work that Jesus has given you to do? How would you do your work if you knew that Jesus was your master? How would you do the meaningless stuff? Well, I think you'd still do it wholeheartedly, wouldn't you? Because it's Jesus who's given it to you and he'll reward you for how you work. Jesus doesn't particularly mind whether you're a high-flying executive or you're just screwing the lids on toothpaste tubes. He doesn't care so much what you do as a job. He cares deeply about how you do it. He cares deeply about your sanctification. The fruit of the Spirit isn't a fulfilling career, a good pay packet in a corner office. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What matters to God is how you work, that you work like Christ, that you work for Christ, that you work under Christ. If we think back to Ephesians 4.28, um, we, sorry, I should say, uh, so that's how to work, but what kind of work should we do? If we go back to Ephesians 4.28, we're told that he who has been stealing must steal no longer. So there is actually some work that is wrong and that Christians mustn't do. And that's probably not very hard for you to work out. Uh, work that involves being dishonest. Work that involves immorality. Work that promotes things that abuse and exploit others. They're wrong things for Christians to be involved in. You think, well, that's difficult, isn't it? 
because lots of the careers where I might get ahead, well, they involve that kind of stuff. First Thessalonians 4 verse 11 says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands. Let's not say, make it your ambition to be an enormous success. Make it your ambition to be on the news. Make it your ambition to be a celebrity or a, a top-notch executive that everyone talks about. No, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business and to work with your hands. See, manual labour in uh, Greek and Roman society was considered a lower form of work. You'd be better off being someone who works with their mind, someone who deals with spiritual things and intellectual matters. Paul says, no, no. Actually, working with your hands, that's a good job for Christians to do. Ecclesiastes says, the sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. That's true. You do a hard physical day's work, you sleep well, you'll be happier, you'll probably be healthier, and most importantly, you'll probably be producing something useful, unlike an awful lot of management positions. (laughs) Aren't your ambition to lead a quiet life? Aren't to be one of the little people? Which goes totally against the grain of our culture, doesn't it? I want to be insta-famous. I want everyone to look at me, to know me. I want to be one of the big people. Ever listen to the uh, music musical Hamilton? I want to be in the room where it happens. I want to be the person of significance. We're all told that we've got to go out there and change the world. Pursue impossible. On your UWA. <laughs> Be the brightest mind. But that's actually not what being a Christian is about. We're actually on about growing God's kingdom, not building our empire. Apart from that, the Bible is actually pretty silent about what work to do. Why? Because it doesn't really matter very much. Can you be a Christian working as a scientist? Of course. Can you be a Christian? As a toilet cleaner, of course you can. Work's a good gift from God. It's one that gives you the opportunity to live amongst other people in a way that brings honour to Jesus and to earn enough money to look after yourself and look after others. Work is a valuable thing for those reasons. But it's not really about creating significance or making myself one of the big people. Work is good, though. But having said that, there are some situations where it's appropriate not to work. So 1 Timothy 5, uh, Paul says that if you're an older widow, your own family ought to provide for you. So I think that it is right to have a place for retirement for those who have put in the hard yards to be able to rest and be provided for by others. But there's another situation where you don't need to go and get a job. And that's if the church sets you aside to do Christian ministry. So here it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 to 12. Come with me to 1 Corinthians 9. You should be fairly familiar with this by now. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. Is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? If we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now this is a striking thing to say in the light of 2 Thessalonians 3, isn't it? Where Paul says, if you don't work, you don't get any food. But here he says that otherwise normal, healthy, capable people are allowed to quit work and sponge off others so they can do Christian ministry. Why the exception? Well, I think it's because what they're doing is more important than being independent, more important than providing for themselves, 
preaching the gospel of Jesus is critical. That's actually what God is at work doing, working to bring everything in heaven and on earth under one head, Jesus Christ. And if that's true, then it's possible for us to work alongside him in that. That's kind of like uh, the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are fellow workers in God's creation. Well, now God actually makes room for people like you and me to work alongside He leaves space for us to contribute something of significance. And the thing of significance is not building bridges or pulling people's teeth or what it is, is bringing people under the control of Christ. God didn't need to do that. He didn't need to leave space for us to do it. He could have done it much better without involving us. But God says, I want to share my joy and my glory with you. I want you to be part of what I'm doing. And he uses us as his fellow workers. All of us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The satisfaction that we get from our jobs is only temporary, but the joy and satisfaction that comes from serving God in the ministry of the gospel, well, that's eternal. We're sharing in the work with Jesus. It's like the parable of the shrewd manager that we looked at the other night, to meet those in the new creation who have benefited from us. To turn up there on the last day and they say, Jeremy, Sarah, Jane, I'm here because you told me about Jesus. This is the work that creation prefigured. And that if you're a Christian, then you're part of it. You're actually a fellow worker with God in the ministry of the gospel. But in 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders uh, we're told the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honour do it well, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Paul is saying that for some people, although we're all involved in being fellow workers with God in the ministry of the gospel, for some people, like Paul, like me, like the staff workers here, pastors in your churches, we get the privilege of doing it full time because... Others have been gripped by that vision as well. They may not have had the opportunities or the skills to do it full-time themselves, but they see that people coming under Christ is the most important thing. Growing in Him. Maturing in Him. That's actually what life is about. And so, alongside serving at church, when they're not having to do their secular job, they've used the money they made from their secular work to support others so they can give up secular work and devote themselves full-time to the ministry of the gospel. None of the staff here could do that without generous people like that. Most of you don't contribute a cent to the staff workers. I'm not saying that as a criticism, although you're welcome to do that. (laughs) My point is... Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. There are hundreds and hundreds of generous Christians all across Perth who are working in secular jobs and giving their money to people like me and other staff workers, which seems bizarre. But they do it because they see the value of the gospel. So there are some reasons that you don't have to work. If you're an older widow, you've reached the point where you can't work anymore. Well, you should be looked after. And for the sake of the gospel, there are some people who are able to give up their work, their secular work, to be able to devote themselves full-time to the ministry of the gospel. So what about work? 
What about deciding about work? Well, this is the decision of whether of that work. And uh, if we go to our uh, diagram here, then that you work, for most of us, that's in the right, wrong area. Um, it doesn't matter what job you get, just go and get one if you need to provide for yourself. It doesn't matter if it's not in your field, it's not the thing that you actually studied. Because providing for yourself is much more important than having a career. What about how you work? Well, that seems to be up the important end of this spectrum. God wants you to be like Christ in your work. He wants you to work well, to work honestly, to work wholeheartedly when the boss is watching you and when he's not. Because ultimately your boss, your ultimate boss, God, is always watching you. It's not saying that you need to be a perfectionist or that you need to work 80 hours a week or something like that. But resting, uh, but working as though God is watching you. Resting each week as well, confident that God can provide for you. I'd suggest that if you need to work seven days a week to pass your course, then change course. If you need to work seven days a week in order to manage your job, quit your job. Choose one where you don't have to work constantly. Because being constantly tired, being worn out and exhausted, it does not help you to be a godly person. Don Carson reckons that sometimes the most godly thing you can do is go to sleep. <laughs> have a day off. After all, what is more important? Is it your career? Is it your wealth? your standard of living, or is it becoming like Christ? Most jobs that grads are employed in are actually careers, aren't they? Your bosses are going to pay you a lot of money because they want your life. And uni trains you well for that sort of work, doesn't it? Uni teaches you how to pull all-nighters. That's why corporations employ uni students. It's not because you know a lot. You actually don't. Most of what you learn are you will learn on the job. They employ you because they know you're the sort of person that they can look for all your worth. That you value that kind of career and so they can put the squeeze on you. You will pull the all-nighters. You've been trained to do it. What sort of job should I do then? If I shouldn't sort of devote myself to this kind of high-powered career, necessarily. Well, what sort of job should I do? Well, actually, that's kind of at the trivial end of the spectrum. It's very different from how we normally think. We spend so much time working, we think that career is precious. So much being invested to get me here. But actually, I don't think Christians should have careers. We just have jobs. A career is something that you are. I'm an engineer. I'm a lawyer. But a job's just something you do. I work as an accountant, but I'm a child of God. What job I should do is true. But do what's right. Be honest. Do a job where you don't need to sin. Do a job where you can rest. Do a job that you're actually capable of doing. Don't fibble on your application form. And do what is wise. What is wise? What is God's will? Well, it's to unite everything under Christ. Things that contribute to that, uh, things uh, that contribute to that are eternally significant. So I reckon you want to get a job that maximises your ministry opportunities. In some jobs, you can actually do that in your work. You get to chat with colleagues or clients or patients or students or whatever, uh, and you get great opportunities to share the gospel. That's a terrific sort of job to get. Or you could get a job that really just doesn't take very much out of you. You just, just screw the lids on toothpaste tubes. And so you'll have the time and energy outside of work to put effort into things like church and youth group, Bible study, stuff like that. But secondly, do something that helps people. It's kind of a natural thing to do if you love people, isn't it? And the most important thing is for them to hear the gospel, but it would be pretty weird to love people enough to share the gospel with them, but not love them enough to help them in any other way. But be really 
realistic about what actually helps. I'm super grateful to doctors. Uh, my dad is a doctor. My wife would have died at least three times since we've been married without quite a lot of doctors. But be realistic. Who most helps the health of our society? It's not actually doctors. It's sewerage workers. It's garbage collectors. What are third world countries most need? They need refrigeration mechanics. They need transport technicians. People who can build roads and keep food fresh. Doctors, they're just the icing on the cake. Sounds like I'm slagging off doctors a lot tonight, doesn't it? But I'm not. I'm grateful for doctors. But be realistic about what is valuable. What actually does help. And thirdly, do something where you can make a lot of money. That way, you'll have more money to give away to support gospel ministry and others in need. But do be careful, won't you? Because it is shockingly easy to end up spending more and more on yourself instead of on others. So why not start by thinking through how much you actually need to survive? And then just stick to that and give the rest away. As you get promoted, as you earn more money, as your paycheck goes up, just stick with what you need. Give the rest away. Don't get sucked into the lifestyle of everyone else. There's an awful lot of Christians driving around in $100,000 cars and living in million-dollar homes. But is that really the best use of your money? And lastly, if you can, get a job you enjoy. It's not the most important thing. But if you can get it, well, it's a good gift from God. Thank you for it and enjoy it. But get your ultimate joy from knowing Him and being known by Him. That's some advice about work. But what about gospel work? Well, I reckon it's pretty hard to climb the career ladder and devote yourself to the spread of the gospel. Some people can, but they're pretty few and far between. Most of us can't. That's not impossible, it's just very, very hard. But many Christians try and do both. And I notice that many of them gradually drift out of serving Jesus. Having a career is a very demanding thing. And it only gets more demanding the more successful you become. So maybe instead of devoting yourself to a career, maybe you could think about could I get a job where I earn enough in two to three days a week so that I have more time to devote to Christian ministry? In doing that, you might actually find that there are more and more opportunities for serving Jesus. You might discover that your ministry starts to grow and it gets harder and harder to fit work in. You've got more people that you want to read the Bible with, more people that you want to share the gospel with. It's hard to... Fit, all, fit the work in when you've got so many opportunities. Well, what do you do then? Well, you go to your friends and you tell them that you'd like to quit your job and you ask them for money. That's what I did. I went to my friends and said, I want to quit my job. I want to go tell people about Jesus on campus. Can you give me some money? And you know what? I said, yes. <laughs> That's why I'm here. <laughs> if your friends care about the gospel, and they think that you're someone who's capable of doing that kind of work, then they'll probably pitch in some money for it. Here's, a, here's an astonishing little thing, actually, going off script. But here's the thing I've discovered. Christians are really grateful when you ask them to give you money for gospel ministry. Because there's so many different things asking for your money, but it's very hard to work out which ones are good. What's actually worthwhile? What's a strategic investment? But if they know you, and they know that you're a godly person, and you seem to have some of the abilities needed to share the gospel, and you've got the desire for it, they say, fantastic. I've been wondering what to do with my money. Thanks for asking me. So go ask your friends. And if they're keen on the gospel, they think you're capable of doing it, they might give you some money so you can quit your job and do that kind of ministry full-time. But who should be doing that kind of ministry? Well, I reckon anyone with a character, conviction and confidence to do it. 
And who wants to do it? Most of you can do it. Most of you know the gospel. Most of you are growing in your understanding of it. Most of you are growing in your Christ-likeness. You've got the capacity to understand and explain the Bible. Most of you are quite capable of doing that kind of work. Do you need a call? Well, Brett spoke about that last night, and I reckon he nailed it. No, God's given you the call. Do you need God to speak to you in some special way to devote yourself to full-time gospel work? No, there's nothing about that in the Bible. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Now go and use your wisdom about how you can best do that. So the question is really not, should I do gospel ministry, but is there any reason that you shouldn't do it? And there are some reasons that you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it if other people are dependent on you and you can't get enough money from gospel ministry to look after. You shouldn't do it if you don't have the capacities. Maybe you get all tongue-tied. Or you've got major failings of godliness that you need to get sorted out. But how many of you here can do full-time gospel ministry? I reckon at least half, probably more. And I reckon all of you should seriously consider it. Why not go work for a couple of years after uni, see what the world is like, come back and do MTS with us. Spend a couple of years exploring full-time Christian ministry and whether it's something you can do long-term. You don't have to do MTS, you don't have to work with us. But why not explore that possibility? But don't wait until a few years down the track to start exploring it. Start doing Christian ministry now. Start sharing the gospel with your friends. Start growing in your abilities and your capacities. Keep working on understanding the Bible. Keep working on helping others to understand it. And you might discover that actually you do have the opportunities and you do have the abilities and maybe you do have the desire as well to be able to do that kind of work full time. So let's wrap this up. God is a worker. He worked to create the world. He continues working to sustain it. And he's working to bring people to himself through Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the ways he provides for us is by providing work. So we can earn enough to look after ourselves and others. But actually the greatest need that others have is to know Jesus. To find forgiveness in him. Which is why Jesus has given all of us the work of spreading the gospel. Not all of us are going to be able to quit our jobs and do that full time, but many of us could. Quite a lot of us in this room. So why not consider it? Do you think at the last day in the new creation, Jesus will say to you, I am so disappointed. I am so disappointed. I had a great life lined up for you. BMW, nice house in the suburbs, two or three kids. You could have lived in the western suburbs of Perth and you threw it all away to go and preach the gospel in North Africa. I am so disappointed. No, I don't think so. I don't think you'll say that. So why not consider it? Why not think about going to North Africa to preach the gospel or anywhere? Amen! <laughs> And whether you end up in full-time gospel ministry or you look for opportunities to share the gospel in and around secular work, keep working for the day when Jesus himself will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Please make us people whose hearts beat in time with yours. That we would see the things that matter. That we would devote ourselves to it. Father, please help us to make wise choices about work. Thank you for providing jobs for us. Thank you for providing, for providing those who support us. But Father, please help us 
to keep working at the job of spreading your gospel, of doing that work of eternal significance, that on the last day there might be people there from every tribe and nation and people and tongue, praising you and rejoicing with us because you used us to bring the gospel to them. Help us to be faithful workers, Lord, wherever you want us. And we pray that you would use us for the glory of Jesus, your Son. And we ask it in his name. Amen.